Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Perhaps if we have time we'll sing um, that beautiful song again um, towards the end. It's good to be part of a church that... um, so aware of world mission. I remember hearing once of a church, I think it was in Birmingham, where it was said of them that their back rows were in Africa. And um, to have links with so many parts is is just great, and to be able to express that um, very practically next week is something that we believe uh, strongly in. Now, we're going to be looking at John chapter 21. If you would like a copy, this is our usual practice, a copy of the Bible, um, all you do now is put your hand up. And um, one will be brought to you, John chapter 21. My uh, version is different numbering, so can somebody shout out what page John 21 is actually on? 1012, 1012. It's a a great story, brilliant chapter, one of, I, I guess... <clears throat> those few that have um, meant so much to so many people uh, just wonderful let's read it we're going to read 17 verses from John chapter 21 afterwards Jesus appeared again to his disciples this is after the resurrection by the sea of Tiberias it happened this way Simon Peter Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and uh, two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, Haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's that's John actually, John the author of this. He sometimes uses that phrase to describe himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lamb. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I think we can all sense, can't we, at the start of this chapter, that Peter has a real problem. It's not a problem with Christ. He knows that he's alive. This is the third time we're told that he's actually met him since he was risen up from the dead. Peter doesn't have a problem with the main fact of the Christian faith. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus is the Son of God. The evidence had been plain before him for now three years. Peter's problem is actually with himself. Two weeks ago, we were looking uh, on Easter Sunday at some of the evidence for the resurrection. Last week, we were being reminded of how Jesus uh, told the disciples, you, you foolish men, that the reason why you have so many struggles and difficulties in your faith and in your understanding is because you pay no attention at all to the scriptures. Now, in the third in this little series, we're looking at Peter himself because he feels that he is such a failure. Just think of what's happened. He deserted Christ, ran away with all the other disciples when they all scarpered off in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was among them. And then when he came creeping back and warmed his hands, you remember, at that fire, that alongside where Jesus was on trial, he then denied all knowledge of his Saviour. He denied with curses and oaths when he was put under pressure. All his promises, his uh, declarations of how faithful he would be, I will not deny you, I will even go to death for you, all that stuff that he had said only hours before. With all hollow, he'd been given a wonderful opportunity, and he blew it. And I think we can sense, as we get into this chapter, what a blow he has taken to his self-confidence and to who he feels he is. He'd been called three years before to become a disciple. Jesus had started to talk about where this would eventually take the entire world. And now he feels, I just haven't got what it takes. He bottled out. He didn't have the resources. He's a failure. And he goes back to the one thing that he knows how to do well. Fishing. It, it's good for people to have something like that. Some, some hobby or activity. They feel, I, I really know how to do that. And he discovers after a night of that, he's no good at that either. And caught a single fish all night. And guys like Nathaniel and Thomas, who'd gone along with him, you know, trusting the expert fishermen, I don't know what they were thinking that morning. Could have been safely in bed and enjoyed themselves. Not a single fish have they got in their net. Why is this kind of story in the Bible? This story of spectacular failure, putting these, these hours, these last couple of days together, 
spectacular failure by the most prominent disciple. Why is it there? And what does Jesus do about it? It's there because the Bible is not a book full of plastic saints and impossible ideals. It's there because real failure is common to us all. All of us. Feelings of defeat and frustration and inner misery at times are not the private experience of one or two particularly uh, unfortunate people in the congregation. Everybody from here to the back of the wall. That's because we're all children of Adam in biblical terms. Children of Adam. Maybe for you, the sense of failure <clears throat> is because of some, some secret guilt. Something that you've just hidden away uh, in your memory. Maybe for years. Well, that is ever so common. I personally believe that that is the most common reason why people don't grow as a Christian, as the Bible sets out the pattern for us to grow. Guilt about things that have been done, we've done, that have never really been dealt with in God's way. Or maybe your sense of failure is to do with your marriage. Trust. Is that one of the words that comes to mind? Meaningless. No communication really left. And you don't want to wholly blame the other person. Probably you blame yourself. Failed, marriage, your kids and so on. Maybe some of us feel that God is, is distant and far off and not interested and just leaves us to our own devices. Can't get in touch with it. And you think, perhaps, do we, that we're the only person to feel like this. Look, the person I am describing is Adam. Adam was the one who hid away because of what he'd done. Adam was the one whose marriage very quickly fell to quarreling, miscommunication, arguing and hurt. Adam was the one who felt that God was so distant. We are, all of us, children of Adam and Eve. We try to hide from the failure that we feel we have, uncertain about God's attitude towards us. Satan, in Genesis chapter 3, that great story at the beginning of time, had been trying to persuade Eve that God was really somewhat against her. And then, of course, when she and Adam disobeyed God, then she, would, she was bound to have believed that God now for sure would be against her. And I want to tell you this morning that that is not true. God is not against any one of us here. Adam indeed was intelligent. Don't imagine that he was some kind of character just out of the tree with his knuckles trailing on the ground. Highly intelligent. Very gifted. No physical defect at all. Living in an absolutely perfect environment. I mean, there wasn't any pollution. There wasn't any you know, noise to keep him awake at night from next door neighbours or any of that stuff. He was in direct communication with God. Adam didn't even have a mother-in-law. There's another little element in what for some of you may be a perfect environment. 
Adam could not go for long walks debating with himself whether he'd married the right one. Nor could Eve stay at home while he was out debating the same question. They had been made for each other and put together. And yet he blew it. And the Peter that we come to in this chapter that we have just read, and we watch the Lord dealing with him, is a true child of Adam, just like us. As we get into the chapter, he is confused, he's hurt, he's needing help. Perhaps handcuffed, as some of us can be, to regret and needing to be released. I believe God's provision for us in that kind of a situation, that way of thinking into which we can settle regularly. God's provisions are set out for us right now here in this chapter. Notice first that Jesus comes. It says in verse 1, Afterwards Jesus appeared again to his disciples. This is again in verse 4. Early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore. He is exactly the same powerful Lord as he had been when he had first stepped into Peter's life. Jesus hadn't changed, though Peter had gone up and down and life had battered him. Jesus had not changed one scrap. And he hasn't changed in all the centuries ever since. The Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus who is here today. The Jesus that we need to deal with, relate to, listen to, learn to follow. The Jesus who had given Peter an enormous great catch of fish, do you remember? Back in, in Luke chapter 5 you can find it. When he had first met him, he is now repeating the thing. And on that first occasion, uh, Peter had said, depart from me, I am a sinful man. <laughs> no, 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 said Jesus, I'm certainly not going to depart from you. I've come to you precisely because you are a sinful man. And it's folk like you that I want to draw into my family and use. I'm calling you, Peter. Secondly, notice this about Jesus. He knew exactly where Peter was. Uh, Ken uh, was, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, by the Sea of Galilee. He's telling some of us about it. That's quite a big sea. You know, you could get lost if you were looking for a fisherman. He knew exactly which beach to stand on, or which little headland or promontory. He knew where Peter and those others were, precisely. He knows you're here this morning. Jesus knows the address to which you're going home to after lunch. He knows where you work. He knows exactly where we are and who we are. Now, Peter didn't recognize him at first. Did you notice that as we read through the story? He didn't immediately recognize him as he stood there in, in perhaps the dim light of dawn. But the Lord wasn't offended by that. He comes into our lives sometimes, we don't immediately recognize him. He doesn't get all happy with us. You know, people do sometimes, if you meet them, you haven't seen them for a year or two, and you meet them on a train, and you, I did this the other day, I used a completely wrong name for somebody. I met someone at Word Alive Spring Harvest. I addressed him by completely the wrong name. My daughter standing beside me realized it. Jesus doesn't mind us making these kind of mistakes. And thirdly, he knew Peter's need. He knows our need. What did he do for him first? Breakfast. Not a sermon. Some of you are tired, exhausted, just with life, even perhaps with Christian ministry. Hurting, maybe. And what Jesus does not begin with is another long exhortation or sermon. He gave him breakfast. 
We need sometimes people just to love us, just to care for us, not to beat us up. This is the Jesus we're talking about today. Our Saviour is the kind who will make breakfast for you. Hmm. And then after breakfast, when they were full and satisfied with the fish and the bread that they'd eaten in that crisp dawn by Galilee, Jesus began asking questions. And in doing so, he hurt Peter. It says so clearly in verse 17. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him that the third time. It didn't hurt him massively, but he hurt him quite deliberately. Is your Jesus one who will do that? Would your Saviour ever hurt you? Well, yes, he will sometimes. Particularly with his word, which is sharp and two-edged. He can sometimes put to us a question or show us ourselves in a mirror. And we find it, at least for a time, hurtful. And he did it quite deliberately. The hurt for Peter seems to have lain in being asked that question, do you love me, a third time. It was horribly reminiscent of that pattern of three denials. Maybe he was trying to forget. Maybe Peter was just trying to brush the whole thing under the carpet. Maybe he would... He was thinking that the Lord would love him and care for him more if somehow all that was not face, was hidden away, was locked and buried. Friends, we will never know how much God loves us until we know how much we need forgiveness and how assured is that acceptance and forgiveness through such a saviour. The Lord's love for people who fail is not at all conditional. I came across this story recently. I'll read it just as I wrote it down. During the Korean War, it comes from America. During the Korean War, uh, the phone rang one day in a fairly well-to-do home on the east coast of America. And a delighted mum found herself speaking to her son who'd been away uh, at the war in Korea um, and from whom she hadn't heard for six months. And he'd come back to San Diego. He was, uh, I think, uh, in the Navy and was on his way home. Mum, I wanted to let you know I'm bringing a friend home with me. He's got pretty badly hurt. He only has one eye, one arm and one leg but I'd like him to live with us. Sure, son, that sounds like a brave guy. I'm sure we can fix him a room for a while. Mum, you don't understand. I want him to come and live with us. Well, okay, I suppose we could manage six months. We could try that. No, Mum. I want him to stay always. He's badly hurt. He needs us. His mother lost all patience at that. Son, You're just being totally unrealistic. You're emotional. You've been in the war. This guy will be a huge drag on you and a problem for all of us. Don't be unreasonable. Suddenly, the phone clicked dead. The next day, the parents received from the Navy a telegram that crushed them. 
The night before, their son had leapt to his death from the 12th floor of a San Diego hotel. A week later, they received his body for burial. And with unspeakable sorrow, they looked down on the corpse of their own one-eyed, one-armed, one-legged son. God's love for people like Peter and me and every one of us isn't conditional. Sure, Peter has denied the Lord and let him down and done all kinds of stuff that will rattle around reverberating inside his brain accusing him for as long as he let it. And the Lord wanted Peter to face that and to know that above and beyond and around and surrounding and dealing with all that is his own love. But then as we come towards the end, let's look at those critical questions. Do you love me? He loves us. And he says to Peter, do you love me? He puts the question actually in, in uh, three ways. He says, do you love me more than these? More than these things? More than the boat? More than the net? More than those nights out on Galilee, which you enjoy? Do you love me more than these? Many of the things that we really enjoy in life, there come times when we have to perhaps, for Christ's sake, put them aside. Do you love me more than these? Do you truly love me? Secondly, from your heart, this isn't pretense, this isn't just religious stuff. You truly love me? Do you love me, Peter, verse 17? Because this is to be the basis of the whole of the rest of Peter's life and ministry. As I was pondering this in preparation, four things struck me. And let me pass them on to you, and then we'll finish. The first is this. Success is not what ultimately matters to Jesus. What matters to him is the maintenance, whatever happens, of this two-way affectionate relationship with him. Success is a funny old thing for Christian people. We'll never know until Judgment Day what has been successful or not. Because it's a question of motives, it's a question of all kinds of things. People have different gifts, different opportunities. They live in different circumstances. They have different health. Success, really, is not what's relevant. That, anyway, is up to God. What matters is, through the ups and downs and the circumstances, do you love me? Is that two-way relationship with me, your creator, your Lord, the one who, who died and rose again, to bring you forgiveness and eternal security. Are you responding in that way? Secondly, the Lord can trust us with responsibility only if we love him. He's going to talk about sheep and lambs and Peter's role and challenge of what he had to do in the church and so on. If we love our job, if we love our responsibility, if we love the fact that we've been given 
some position or status or power even. And we love that more than we love Christ. In the end, we'll make a mess of things. Because the Lord will be hardly able to take these things away from us. We'll just mess up. Even in Christian work. Don't love the work more than you love the Lord. The Lord says, look, they're my sheep I want you to feed. They're my lambs, not yours. If you love me, then you'll look after them and love them and care for them as mine. And then, thirdly, love for Christ is the key to keeping going when hostility and pressure and difficulty begin to arise. As they surely did for Peter. And they do for us. Peter was going to go through prison and persecution and would eventually be murdered. Brutally murdered in in Rome, if tradition is right. And on those occasions, he wasn't going to run away or flinch or deny as he had done before. Because his whole life had shifted onto this, this new basis. He was going to live in whatever circumstances that came. Loving Christ. When you go to Brazil, there will be challenges, difficulties, persecutions, things that will make you weep. Love Christ. The frustrations of not knowing even whether you're going to get a go. You may be sentenced to spend the rest of your life in Coventry. Love Christ in Coventry. Or wherever. Or in, in your, your homes and, and whatever those areas of life where you feel bruised and, and failing, yeah. Loving the Lord, your God, Jesus his Son, is the key to keeping going in those kind of things. We are serving him. And then finally, I notice in, in these questions that the Lord asks Peter, he's actually wanting Peter to begin to express his emotional commitment to Christ. Do you love me? Can I hear that again, Peter? We men are not, I think, quite so good at that. Maybe in those times and in the Middle East, the men were better at expressing these kind of emotions. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, keep your voice down. I do, but I don't want Nathaniel and Thomas knowing. I don't feel comfortable saying it. And anyway, I can't even fish properly now, and I'm not sure you'd want someone like me loving you. And the Lord gets Peter to express boldly, and more than once, Lord, I love you. I love you for what you've done. I love you for who you are. I love you, no matter, I mean, they're going to go on, uh, if you know the rest of the chapter, to discuss how, how long Peter was going to live, and whether somebody else was going to live longer, and what would happen to him at the end, and all that stuff we didn't read. Whatever comes, I love you. He first loved us. He chose us. We didn't choose him. And then we respond. This, as I've said, and this is what I'm going to stop with, is the basis of the whole of the rest of Peter's life. You will leave this room shortly. Go home, drink coffee or orange juice or whatever, chat. Friends, go with a redetermination in your heart and life to love Christ, whatever.
And we express that at the Lord's invitation by paying close attention to the needs of others of his sheep and lambs. Feed them. Tend them. Care for them. Be alert to them. Young and old. And in the middle. Where most of us are. Because you love him. The Lord is gathering up people who feel broken, who are hurting, who feel that they've messed up, and he's drawing them into individually close relationships with himself. Helping them to see that it's not success, it's not achievement, it's not the way the world thinks that matters. What matters is walking with him, getting to know him, loving him, and he in his own secret, wise, wonderful way is actually transforming family after family, broken situation after broken situation, that way. Do you love me? How can we not when he loves us so unconditionally? What a great saviour we have. There may be some, as we come to the end now of, of our service, stirred up, maybe wanting just to talk with somebody, maybe just to explain something and then have them pray. I mean, not talk so much, but just open your heart and then have someone pray whatever God gives them to pray into that bruised or or wounded heart. If you would like to do that, Andrew, earlier on in leading the service, talked about people recommitting themselves, as Peter was invited to be recommissioned. If you want to do that, come to the front. There's always a a few of us who sort of linger and don't immediately... um, get the coffee. I think I must be the last person to get coffee Sunday by then. Come to the front and we just pray. Talk, pray. Whatever you need. Because this is for us. This is in the Bible because we need this kind of message. Let us pray now together. Lord, you know that we love you. You know, those of us here in this room who have difficulty even acknowledging that. Thank you, Lord, for accepting us just as we are, with whatever background we bring, with whatever things we continue to live through. Thank you that your love is unconditional and forever. Help us, Lord, to love you in the way that you want. May we be a generous church, a mission-minded church, a holy people with whom you are pleased to live. For your name's sake, amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.